Listener Production. House price appreciation is about 11 times wages growth at the moment. And the typical property value in Australia, if we index that growth, that value for the 18% increase, it's a rise of over $100,000 on the typical property price in Australia in the space of a year, or the equivalent to about $2,000 a week. It's extraordinary. Welcome to The Good Oil with Scott Phillips, the podcast where we try and get, well, the good oil from those people who know. We're going to be speaking to CEOs, experts, entrepreneurs, business people, basically the people who know what's going on so I can find out and hopefully so you can find out as well. And today we have one of the very best. We have Eliza Owen, who you may have heard on Motley Fool Money. We did a bonus episode for those who've been listening to Motley Fool Money for a while, but now we have our own podcast. Eliza has her own stage and hopefully we're going to learn a whole lot more about the property market because Eliza is the head of Australian research for property firm CoreLogic. G'day, Eliza. How are you? I'm really well. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be chatting to you again. It's awesome. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed last time. We got so much great feedback, Eliza. Thank you for volunteering to be part of our new podcast. You are second cab off the rank, mate, and I'm very, very excited that you've you've chosen to join us because there is nobody who knows more about the Australian property market and most importantly, breaks it down as simply and as comprehensively. Now, Eliza, since we last spoke, there's been just a little bit going on, this little thing called COVID. Uh, plenty of property forecasts, everything from booms to busts and most things in between. And you You've had a absolute ringside seat because this is your this is what you do this is your bread and butter. Um, we'll get to that in a sec, but I'm going to start in a slightly different place just because I well I don't know you super well. We've met a couple of times and chatted. For those who don't know the Eliza Owen story, how do you come to become the head of research in Australia for CoreLogic? Um, I I think it's been a, a combination of just kind of a passion for economics and and just a little bit of luck really. <laughs> I, uh, and I'm sure that's how many many careers are formed, right? Um, I, yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I sort of started off um, studying economics at university and uh, I had moved out of home and needed a job <laughs> for my rent. <laughs> um, so uh, it was the, the job that I found was working in the call centre of a small Australian property data company called Residex. There you go, okay. Yeah, so it was sort of coming in through the mailroom, if you like, um, calling real estate agents and getting recent sales results. And then as I worked in that job, I I kind of developed a bit of an interest in real estate, urbanism, Um, the property market started taking off. So then I became quite stressed about affordability (laughs) and ended up using my uh, economics knowledge to develop uh, communication and, and just be more vocal about housing. And uh, I've been extremely fortunate to have just uh, moved up the ranks in that space. Um, and, and I've been there ever since. Nice. I wouldn't say fortunate. Uh, you're being very modest. You're very, very good at your job. You know your stuff. You communicate it very, very well, which is why I wanted to have you on the podcast to help oh, break thank down Thank you so much. No, it's, well, it's true, mate. The good thing about my job is if you weren't that good, I would have invited you on because <laughs> you know, <laughs> For people who don't know, don't get the list of... I'm not going to share the list of people I didn't invite on, put it that way. So uh, I really appreciate you making the time. Mate, let's let's start then, I guess, with the most recent set of results. CoreLogic put out a report yesterday. Or you, guys, you put out a report yesterday. The August Home Value Index is its official name, apparently. For the rest of us, it's, oh my goodness, how much has property gone up this time? <laughs> um, maybe, you can, maybe you can just start by breaking it down for us. We're recording this, you should say, on the 2nd of September. This will come out early next week. Um, but it's, we, we specifically wanted to do it today because the report was out yesterday. So we're getting the absolute latest from you and from CoreLogic. What were some of the headlines, the highlights from the August report? 
So the highlights from the August report were a, a continually strong growth rate. We had an uplift of uh, 1.5% in property values nationally, which takes the annual increase in Australian property values to uh, over 18%, 18.4% to be exact. Uh, and to put that in perspective, it's the highest annual appreciation we've seen in dwelling values since 1989. Oh, gee, okay. Yeah, and uh, dwelling values have risen 16%. So, uh, much of that growth has taken place in the last eight months alone. So the the monthly rate of growth is actually slowing gradually. It's it's come down from a peak of about 2.8% in March, but it's still well above the previous decade average. Yeah, and, and those are just remarkable numbers. I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that you started talking about your career and said, oh, I was concerned about affordability. So I thought I'd look into property and now we're sitting here X number of years later talking <laughs> about a, a house price growth of 18.4% for the year, 1.5% for the month. Put in some context for us, if you would, the 18.4% obviously is an annual number and it's the highest, as you said, since 89. How unusual is it in the intervening periods? I mean, second highest obviously means it's very, very high, but is it high by a little bit, higher by a lot? Kind of, you know, if there was a, if there's a bell curve of kind of outcomes and, and how the you know, normal distribution of the usual averages in the middle, how far, how extreme is this? How unusual is this sort of growth? Uh, it, it's very extreme. So again, it's sort of the, the highest result we've seen since the 1980s, but we're certainly not in unprecedented territories. So we were seeing double digit uplifts, for example, in that previous boom period between 2012, 2017, and going back, uh, I guess a decade average appreciation over a month uh, would be about half a percent. So to see the property market still rising by 1.5% in the month is quite extraordinary. It, it is. It's funny when you talk about percentages, right? Because you say, oh, half percent to one and a half percent, that's only a one more percent. That's not that big a deal. But I guess the combination of it being a compound number, but also the fact it's effectively three times the rate of growth, right? It's, it's yeah. dealing with small numbers can feel like they're insignificant until you really look at the long-term impact or the compound impact over any period of time that starts to really jump out. Exactly. It's that cumulative effect, like when it's happening every month. <laughs> I mean, house price appreciation is about 11 times wages growth at the moment. And the typical property value in Australia, if we index that that growth, um, that that value for the for the eighteen percent increase, uh, it's a rise of over a hundred thousand dollars on the typical property price in Australia in the co- in in the space of a year, and, or the equivalent to about two thousand um, dollars a week. So. <laughs> It's uh, it's it's it is, extraordinary. It I'll talk to you about affordability in a little bit, uh, but maybe just while we stick to the report for a sec, if, if we can. Um, obviously, they're national numbers. Uh, you are always super, super across the state, regional, city changes. Uh, I know last time we spoke, you re- we rattled out numbers like no one's business, uh, which is always impressive. Um, maybe if you could break down another level for us. We've got listeners across the country, probably across the world as well, but you, you only do Australia, so let's stick there. Um, how does it compare by city, by state, by region? Are there, are there particular outliers, particular highlights or lowlights? What's kind of happening if we break it down one more level? Yeah, sure. I mean, I will preface this by saying what's so interesting about the current environment is that this is a very broad-based upswing. So in the past, we've seen a lot of divergent performance, the very different factors that have driven Australian economies and housing markets. Um, Not since 2010 have we seen this this very broad-based and synchronised kind of movement in the Australian property market. So um, we've seen increases of 
um, over 1% across Sydney and Melbourne. Um, the weakest growth for the month was across Darwin. Now, Darwin had a decline of 0.1%, but that is a more volatile market. And if you look over the past 12 months, it's been one of the strongest performers with increases of over 20%. And then, <laughs> yeah, um, the uh, other highlights across the monthly results would be Hobart with an uplift of 2.3% in the month. So that's the strongest of the capital cities, uh, followed by the ACT. Remember, a market that was in lockdown for, for much of August as well, where values have increased a further 2.2%. So once you get to the kind of annual appreciation in growth, it, it ranges from an uplift of almost 25% across Hobart to the weakest growth rate um, was 13% across Melbourne, which isn't terribly weak at all. But <laughs> That's about the story of the – well, you're talking about synchronous uplift. I mean, that, that's exactly the story, right? I'm tempted to wonder whether the Hobart thing is – some continuation of, of the catch-up of what was a cheaper market or is considered a cheaper market. Um, you're the expert, I'm not. I, I, I'm talking about the anecdote or the, the generally perceived view. Is that part of it still? Is, was it ever part of it? Is it? Are there particular things that are driving those state or, or city, even though they're kind of all going up together, is there anything that's driving the, the differences between those results? I think you're right in that it was coming off of a relatively low base and now we're seeing a very rapid appreciation in, in values. There are other tailwinds for that market. Uh, before the closure of international borders, Tasmania saw a pretty big uplift in overseas migration. Right. So that may have sustained some housing demand uh, through international border closures as well. Mm. And I think it's it's just become, it, I mean, it's such an appealing market in many respects, especially amid normalised remote work that we've seen through COVID where you've got relatively uh, high-income earners uh, who, who may look to that market as a kind of tree change, uh, sea change escape. And the other thing longer term is that I think it's got tailwinds in terms of climate, you know, as, as um, temperatures rise across Australia, Hobart's relatively cool. And there is even research that documents migration to Tasmania um, as kind of climate-motivated uh, uh, migration that's already happening. That's a, a, I mean, it's, it's a heck of a time we're living through, right? When you when you're doing internal migration within Australia to Tasmania for climate change, that's a whole different conversation we can have. But um, it is amazing to see it happening in in real time. Um, I guess if maybe then to kind of take a step back from that, the and again speaking of the anecdotes or the the easy tropes, I suppose that apply to property, right? Um, it was supposed to be the foreign buyers who were all pushing the price up. We're supposed to crack down on foreign buyers. And that, that apparently happened, or maybe it did, maybe it didn't, or maybe just the, the tabloids stopped talking about it. I'm not sure which, and feel free to correct me otherwise on that one. And then it was all about um, migration that was supposed to push prices up. And of course, when that stopped, because literally the borders have been closed, that was supposed to hurt the property market. We're now kind of in, I don't know if it's phase three, four, five of that, where I'm, I'm not sure whether people are running out of ideas or... I, so I guess, I guess you know, given your given your reasonably longish history in, in the property market, if you can kind of break that down for me, were those things ever real? Have we moved from one set of factors to another set of factors and we're just lucky or lucky in air quotes? If you own a property, you're lucky. If you don't, you're unlucky. But is it just a case of, of, of the demand factors kind of sequentially happening in a, in a fortunate way that keeps prices moving in a single direction? Was those things ever true or maybe no, never true and therefore there was no change to be had? How do you think about some of those macro factors going back three or four years? 
Yeah, that's such a good question. I think that there are some underlying changes in demand composition that that are true that that we try and understand through data. I think the foreign investment one has always been a bit, always been a bit uh, overblown. Uh, at least from what I can see in the data space, where it's been a bit of a black box, but you know we're still seeing articles. I believe there was a survey recently, I think from UTS, where people were surveyed on their uh, perceptions of what was causing housing affordability issues across Australia. Okay. And the the most common response was foreign buyers. <laughs> okay. And the results of the survey coincided with the NAB quarterly housing survey, which had showed um, foreign interest in Australian real estate was actually at a record low at, at the time. So, right, yeah. um, and, and we have indeed seen a decline in foreign investment through much of 2020 as well. I think when it comes to the real estate drivers, I, I happen to think it's very demand driven. So it comes a lot from uh, expansionary monetary policy. We've seen a pretty sustained decline in the cash rate over the past couple of cycles. And that has, of course, been exacerbated by COVID-19 with the reduction of the cash rate to 0.1%. The composition between the previous cycle and the current cycle has changed. And I think we have spoken about this a little bit, but your um, 2012 to 2017 was very much driven by a, a increase in investor participation in the market. This time around, it's been much more owner-occupiers and also some of the perverse kind of impacts of, of COVID. The fact that you had low mortgage rates in response to, or, or low lending rates in response to uh, economic contraction, coupled with people being locked down and not going out and, and spending. So all of a sudden the household savings rate goes up to 21% in the June 2020 quarter against a then decade average of 7%. So all of a sudden people might have these little deposits accumulated. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, what's that? The first home loan deposit schemes in place, <laughs> home builder, state-based grants for new builds, uh, additional stamp duty concessions. And all of these things culminate in an enormous surge in first home buyer participation, which again is putting that demand pressure on the market. And, and at its peak, um, first home buyer demand was uh, around 16,000 loans secured in the month of uh, January 2021. And that's now starting to, to trend down as some of the incentives wind down. In the COVID period, mate, I am blown away by the sheer growth in price. Well, so, so I'll, I'll separate it. I've got, I've got two separate thoughts, which are almost opposing thoughts. The first is, as you mentioned, the cash rate coming down. Um, we, well, I think we know. I, I hear that we know. You may have a different view or different data. We th- I think we know that affordability on a repayment basis is basically the best it's been in 30 years. So on one hand, you've got, well, obviously, you know, if, if you can literally go to the bank and say, how much can I borrow? And she or she says, more. You go, great, thank you very much. I'll pay more then because I can, and which is perverse in its own way, but that's kind of the, 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 the kind of the silent ever everlasting auction that we have in Australia is that idea of like, you know, if we all pay a little bit more than we all do, and so that pushes prices up. On the other hand, you've got COVID itself, the impact on confidence, the impact on jobs, obviously. Despite some of the stimulus measures, there's going to be more than a few Australians listening to this or just around the place who are saying, well, gee, I don't know. I mean, uh, am I going to have a job next week, next month when the stimulus runs out, when the government's turned off the tap? What happens to my job, my employer? So you've got to get these two things happening at the same time it's it's never been well not never it's almost you know not made affordable in in you know last 20 30 40 years on the flip side you know employment's probably not been 
more insecure for since probably 08, 09. There's this two kind of, you know, one's pulling, one's pushing. How do you kind of, is it, is it just monetary policy? Is it just simply a fact of, hey, we can, we can borrow, we can afford to borrow more, so we will borrow more. And that means that in that auction, either literal at auction or just the silent auction, we can all pay a little bit more for our houses. So sellers are, are putting the prices up. Is, is that too simplistic? Oh, I think there's so much. There's so much there. I, I agree with um, with a lot of what you've said, Scott. In, and yes, in terms of affordability, maybe maybe it would help to take a, a bit of a step back and just think about the more um, historical, political yeah, please, yeah. context as well. Australia is, I think, kind of set up to encourage a self sufficiency financially and in retirement, right. and we have, um, in, in that sense, it, you know, the tax incentives and, and encouragement of people to kind of get into a market um, and home ownership kind of being the, the end goal. Um, so that by the time you're in retirement, you don't have those ongoing housing costs. And there's also research that suggests that home ownership is important for drawing on the equity in retirement for healthcare costs, things like that. So... The approach, I think, has been very much to, in, in terms of affordability over time, we've seen a deterioration in measures of affordability that are entering that system. Ah, right. So the, the, mainly the deposit hurdle. Yeah. Over time, generally, serviceability costs of, of um, paying rent mm. or paying a mortgage have come down, yeah. and that's just the function of interest rates. Mm-hmm. CoreLogic is producing more high-frequency measures of affordability, which show that even those serviceability metrics are starting to deteriorate a little bit. Mm. So if we look at, say, the portion of income that's used to service a mortgage, mm. nationally, we see that as having gone up from about 32% in the September quarter of 2020 um, to about 36% as of oh, March wow. this year. Okay. Yeah, and that's a- against a backdrop of, of falling mortgage rates as well and mm. potentially just that the, the price increases sort of offsetting the, the benefit there for serviceability. Mm. So the response to that in terms of affordability has not been to bring prices down but to help people <laughs> overcome the yeah. deposit hurdle, right? Oh, right. And that's yeah. been... And I'm not... I'm not you know, that, it, that has been explicitly stated by the coalition in their approach with the first home loan deposit scheme and even with things like the uh, family home guarantee, which is a, a similar kind of policy design. So um, I, I think there's just so much in place to support the housing market. And when it comes to affordability, I think it does become a question of, yeah, do, do, do people even want property prices to be affordable or are we more <laughs> continuing yeah, yeah. you know this yeah. this system where it, where it does become a, a thing of um, wealth and and remains that kind of pillar so I don't know I think it's really difficult and it's been difficult for I think people in a lot of those more desirable lifestyle markets uh, who just happen to have been renting on the mid-north coast around the Richmond Tweed area and all of a sudden, rent values have gone up over 10% in the year. Property prices have gone up almost 30% in the year. Yeah, that, that's the kind of most pressing affordability issue, I think, that needs to be addressed at the moment. It's one of those weird things about COVID, the, the idea of people being able to work remotely and the sea change, tree change stuff. We've almost exported 
unaffordability from the cities to the regions, right, mm. by simply pushing demand out there. And generally speaking, particularly if people are selling properties and moving, they simply have more ability to pay than the local residents who are probably on lower wages, generally speaking, yeah. um, and don't come with the ability to sell a Sydney property and move to the Central Coast of New South Wales or, or maybe, <laughs> I don't know if it's I don't, same with the Grayson Road down in Victoria potentially or, or maybe up the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, but the same kind of idea of, um, as you say, as you move out of the city, you kind of take the city prices and city assets with you um, and you can buy a lot more than the locals can just by virtue of the fact you're starting from a higher base, right? Yeah, absolutely. And something that's really exacerbated that trend and something that I think is not spoken about as much is, you know, there's there was a big narrative about an exodus from the cities to regions. In actual fact, the number of departures from capital cities to regional Australia wasn't at a record high um, when, when you look oh, wow, at okay. the ABS back series. It was instead a combination of slightly more people moving from capital cities to regions but that usual um, movement that you get of movement from regions to the cities didn't happen. Oh, so right. at the same time, you've had a slight uplift in people going to regional Australia. People in regional Australia stay put for pretty obvious reasons, right? Yeah, They're not yeah. going to work or study in, in cities through 2020. And that has put additional pressure on the listing space where listings volumes are very low relative to where they right. typically be around this time of year because you're not getting that same migration, mm-hmm. mobility and the housing turnover that comes with that. That is fascinating. I hadn't thought about that. It's, I said, and that's why we're talking to you because the general view is everyone's moving from the cities to the country. That's what's going on. Uh, I, don't, I have not seen reported yet. Maybe I haven't been reading your stuff enough, but I have not seen reported yet the fact that it's, <laughs> because people aren't leaving the regions that's, that's driving. That's that's really, really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, there are examples of it. We've seen an uplift of, you know, looking at the March quarter this year compared to the previous year, there was an uplift of around 30% in migration from specifically Melbourne to Queensland, okay, which is, is quite substantial. The, the, the escape migration, is it? People getting out of, yeah. out of lockdown central, okay. Yeah, so you can infer that that's been induced by extended <laughs> lockdowns, but yeah. again, that additional pressure of not as many people leaving the Sunshine State. There you go. You should, they, they should know better. New South Wales is clearly the place to be. Uh, <laughs> I might be a biased. Eliza, you mentioned affordability, and I guess when we talk about affordability, we talk averages. And I'm I'm going to I'm going to assume from the way you catched your answer, not that you meant it deliberately, but as I listened to what you were saying, that we probably are better look at as a distribution rather than an average, right? The average says, well, the millionaires and and the people on on Struggle Street on average are doing okay. It, of course, you know, avoids the fact there is no average or there's very few average people. Everyone's on a distribution. Is that the biggest challenge? Is thinking about maybe the top, the bottom couple of deciles of of would be home buyers, and that's where the affordability crisis hits. On average, it's all fine. But it's that, you know it's it's fine people with full time jobs and long careers and and lots of equity that same number is simply just not fine for someone early in their career trying to find their first home despite some of the government programs or have they done enough where, where are we sitting with that I think the government programs objectively have increased the number of first home buyers participating in okay. the market so job done to some degree yeah and I think that particularly having a scheme that you know with an income cap um, maybe not. Targeting the people in the most vulnerable situations, but it is a scheme that certainly increases home ownership, which again is that end goal of self-sufficiency, financial self-sufficiency. The 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 critique I think of that kind of policy is that it doesn't really cater as much to people at the margins, and I think that when you look at home ownership, that's all well and good to say that's the plan for retirement and security. But when you see numbers 
that suggest throughout the decades, reliably, those in the lowest income quintiles have typically the lowest rates of home ownership. And that even extends to research we've done at CoreLogic between men and women. Women are typically on lower incomes. The accumulation of of a deposit takes longer, you know, if you're trying to do it by yourself. So, um, yeah, I think anything that disadvantages people in terms of their um, income makes them more likely to, to not be able to achieve home ownership. And that's a really big challenge. And I think as well in the current situation we're in, even the nature of COVID, where remote work tends to benefit people who are professionals, who are on higher uh, incomes. Uh, I think that's a really interesting, um, just looking at the composition of the Sydney workforce, for example, a very high concentration of workers across the Northern Beaches, the Borkham Hills, Hawkesbury region can work from home. And that's much higher than the concentration across, say, the southwest of Sydney, where people are in stricter lockdowns and, and have probably had their incomes more disrupted through the current period. Mm. It, it, yeah, I mean, and that, well, I mean, that's it's a really nice way of looking at it from a very opposite direction, which is gets to the point of where the COVID outbreaks are and the people have to leave home to go to work, right? We're kind of, we end up, end up in the same place and talking about the same things. I wonder if, look, the other thing we did talk about last time too, um, but it's worth revisiting because most people wouldn't have listened to or may not have listened to last, uh, our last chat. The problem with affordability is we generally look at household incomes, right? And again, ha- average household incomes, the average household has two people in it. So if you're not an average household and you have one, male or female, frankly, but as you say, women who tend to be on even lower incomes are the third, fourth, fifth line of of availability, right? If you're trying to afford a home on a single income at all, you're probably, I imagine, almost entirely locked out through much of Australia. And even if you're not... If, again, if you're on a lower than average income and then if you happen to be on a lower than average income and you're female, you know, it, it is structurally difficult for those people to simply get a foothold given the structure of the property market. That's correct. And I think part of the schemes do target that. So, for example, and, and that's a gendered issue as well, by the way, because most single adult um, households are female-headed. Oh, of course. So, right. single-parent yeah, yeah, yeah. households in particular yeah but they have a a disproportionate level of of sole ownership in the property market. So something like the new home guarantee, which is offering a low deposit home loan uh, for a single parent to get into the market is more likely to, you know, benefit women. And, but I guess the, the challenge with a policy like that is it's one thing to um, say you're eligible for the scheme. It's a different thing to actually qualify for a, for a home loan and and be able to service it on, on your single income. So, yeah, definitely. That That is um, a real challenge and I think it's something that needs to be addressed because even if you think of the decoupling of, of uh, households, there is uh, research that suggests women are more likely to lose their home ownership status after a divorce, say. So, yeah, it is a very interesting the way it interacts with all these kind of structural disadvantages as well. And I'm, I'm partly, I'm partly desperate to talk about some of those. I'm also mindful that uh, you're not here to talk about politics or policy necessarily. Um, but I will, I'll, I'll ask you one quick question. Maybe we'll see how we go from here. Um, you talk about the structure of of the property market and, and its role or, or, or perceived role, inferred role in in society and life in the economy here in Australia, which is effectively, as you say, a pillar of retirement, wealth, or savings. Um, I can, I'll, I'll give you a magic wand for a second and. Uh, Given, given, given those for those who can't see, Eliza's waving a hand right now across Zoom. It looks fun. like a conductor, actually. It's <laughs> I was, I was thinking, I was going bewitched, but you're right. It probably is more conductive <laughs> than, than, uh, than magic. All right, um, 
if you, if you does it need changing? If you did change it, how would you change? It? I know this this is miles outside your core day job, right? But you spend all day every day, I assume, thinking about these sorts of things. To the extent you're comfortable answering the question, and, and feel free not to. Is it is it uh, is there a is there a solution? Is there a better solution? Is there a better framing given that disadvantage? Given those people who are excluded from the market, I've got to say there are some listeners who are probably listening with two or three properties, a couple of investment properties, who are saying, "I'm fine, thanks very much." <laughs> Others who are listening going, "Man, I'd love to get in the property market somehow because either I'm too young, not enough income, disadvantaged." In other ways, um, that's kind of a, a microcosm of the Australian society, right? Is there is there a fix? Should we fix it? How could we fix it? Do you have any thoughts on that or am I pulling you too far away from your day job? That's so, it's such a good question. What would the alternative be? Yeah. Because what I will say is that it is very entrenched. Um, the, the composition of home ownership is roughly 30% owned outright, 30% owned with a mortgage, 30% renting. Uh, or <laughs> a third. A third, I Rather. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the other term says Tasmania, we don't talk about them. <laughs> in space. Um, my goodness. So uh, anyway, the, a lot of people with skin in the game, right? But then we think about it uh, in terms of household wealth. Housing makes up about 54% of household wealth. Uh, it makes up about, mortgages make up about 60% of bank loan books. And the asset itself is worth almost $9 trillion. So that's a very, yeah, it's a very difficult thing to disentangle. And I think when you're in that situation where you can't necessarily disentangle it, your only option is perhaps to subsidise that more social and affordable housing aspect for those that will never achieve ownership, even though that is progressively kind of the, the ideal just to make sure that you have adequate social and affordable housing or um, payment assistance. And in terms of what it would be ideally, I guess that's probably not for me to say, you know, it's, um, I think that can be a very subjective, very subjective thing, but yeah. it's it, really interesting. There, there is some, there is some challenge. And as you say, in trying to encourage home ownership, making it, making it more affordable, more easy for some, that does have the impact of pushing prices up, which ironically does both helping 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 some maybe on the very 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 marginal. Can I can I afford it? Can I not? Maybe they get on the inside, they flip over to the right side of the line, but it kind of pushes the rest away further, right? Because prices keep going up. Yes. And so, some degree, it causes that problem. It, it reinforces the inequality, and that's exactly what the RBA have have highlighted about the uh, one of the detriments, I suppose, of the low interest rate, high house price environment. Yeah, totally. I'm curious as to your thoughts on deposits. I have so I, I've had I've had similar thoughts to you, and I have written about this before. And I I find myself on one hand we want people to be conservative, we want banks to be conservative. We know that adding equity, adding deposits does kind of make a difference, and, and a proves your ability to save and and hopefully repay. It it lowers the risk for the banks themselves. That's I mean that's exactly where we are, and that's part of what the government rule you know programs are to try and reduce or lower that barrier. I got to say, given after and everything else right now, um, I, I'm even, and frankly, the banks have also learned that the options aren't the customer repays or you foreclose. I mean, the, the, the COVID taught us that bank loan deferrals, you know, we found a better way, right? So I kind of find myself in a situation where, and it almost feels like sacrilege to say, but I'm almost not entirely sure a deposit is actually required in the same way that it does, particularly given it's a barrier. I'm not entirely sure 100% home loan, not because not we want people to borrow more in absolute dollars, but given the given the obstacle it is i'm not not so sure we wouldn't be a better side if we said look deposits are old school and i'm not a i'm not a kind of let's all go after pay guy i i don't love the the concept in general <laughs> um, but but i but i'm not entirely sure we shouldn't just kind of go you know we can move from deposits to 
repayability, affordability, and whatever you know, whatever servicing I think is the word you use, which is probably the better word, rather than rather than kind of making people jump through these hurdles that actually may not be necessary for the banks or for the borrower. Do you think um, getting rid of? Uh, I, I do have thoughts on that, and and I can explore that. But um, just at the onset, do you think that getting rid of a deposit would push up prices? I'm the one who asked the questions here, Eliza. I have no idea. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, it shouldn't if the same criteria are used, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it, it probably would to the extent that um, it would let more people into the market who otherwise couldn't. And so by definition, more demand in the same supply should push up prices to some degree. Yes, absolutely, probably would. But the proportion to which it pushes the prices up relative to the and we're back to the serviceability, but the degree which it pushes up the repayments is probably a different number, right? So does it push prices up? Yes, but repayments go up a little bit, so you can pay hundred extra hundred bucks a month rather than finding a hundred grand in deposit. Uh, yes, it probably would, but net net, I would assume it would improve access to more people in that. Again, not to, it's never going to be everybody, and as you say, affordable affordable public housing is important. Um, but that next group who could afford to repay it but can, can't get the deposit together, if they had to pay a little bit more because price went up a little bit because we push more people into the market there versus not getting it at all, yeah, yeah it probably would actually, really honestly, at that yeah. bottom end. I, I, I see what you're saying because I think if you got rid of all deposits, it would be like theoretically greater access to credit, greater access to credit, yes, higher true. house prices. But I see what you're saying in terms of really targeting that in terms of, and, and I think that reflects kind of like the first home loan deposit scheme. It's like, okay, just get a 5% deposit and the government will guarantee the rest of the loan. Uh, oh, sorry, the rest of the deposit. Um, the, the, the other major factor at play here is the prudential regulation. So currently the um, governor, RBA Governor Phil Lowe had, had indicated recently at the um, Standing Committee of Economics hearing that um, the the trigger for kind of changes in credit regulation or, or um, what they're really monitoring is where uh, credit growth is outpacing income growth. So that's one of the challenges at the moment where credit growth uh, in the housing space, at least, was up 6% in the year to July, thereabouts, compared to income growth of, you know, like 2, 2%, 2.5%. So that that sustainable, or if that situation is sustained, where your credit growth is faster than your income growth, the nature of interventions was actually limiting, you know, debt to incomes, loan loan to incomes that were quite high. Um, in New Zealand, you know, they've talked about targeting certain buyers with higher deposits as well. So I think that deposit. It, um, factor is also really interesting in terms of just ensuring the security and the prudential nature of the lending space as well. I'm not necessarily, personally, I don't love the idea of going in for a home loan with a with a super low deposit because I know that's just more that I've got to pay the yeah, bank exactly. over time. And, and with interest, by the way, yeah, yeah. With interest, yeah. but I suppose for you as an individual, if that means that the extra money you'd pay the bank in interest is less than what you might pay in rent for a year, then certainly it, c- it can work out for the individual. And, oh, the other thing was afterpay. I wanted, I saw your thoughts on afterpay. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. I think Go on Twitter, on. just as a quick aside, I thought it was... Um, <laughs> I, I agree with you because I think it reflects a lot of like, uh, you know, credit cards where it's this kind of buy now, pay later. And a very small people, a very small portion of people who use that system can be quite savvy with it. Oh, yeah. So yeah, if you use Afterpay to like buy in bulk, for example, perhaps you would actually be saving, making some savings. But I agree that I think the the majority or, or what the, the relying, what the 
um, offers we'd be relying on was people not repaying on time. You have to assume so. Maybe maybe we should get back get you back for a non property chat because I think it might be a fun one. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree on Afterpay. I just it worries me that for for those who can cut up a credit card and use Afterpay instead, that's there. That's a net benefit, and I think that's great. I've actually used PayPal's paying for thing, um, and they put it on my credit card. And I always pay my credit card off every month in full, so PayPal is giving me a couple of week advance, which is fine, and mm. it's, you know, it is what it is. But I'm not. But I'm not one of these sixteen to twenty two year old borrowers who have never had a credit card. Probably wouldn't apply for one, but all of a sudden are trained to use debt and mortgage next month's paycheck or next week's paycheck to buy whatever they want today, I just, I, I just, I, I think, you know, can, like you say, it can absolutely be a wonderful tool to use well. I just don't know whether we need it because of the impact it has on those who don't or won't use it well, maybe through their own fault, maybe through lack of financial literacy or training or just, you know, they're not just cut out to, to use it well. And I think that's, I don't think we need more re, no, more ways to send people broke, I guess, is my general <laughs> challenge. I think we've probably, we've probably done a good enough job of kind of, you know, uh, turning, turning the economy into a, or turn the society into an economy rather than uh, adding more to it. Mate, let's, let's get off that one and move forward a little bit. Um, uh, we're getting towards the end of our chat. If you think, I guess the, the question now from on everyone's minds is fine. You've told, talked about the past. Look forward for me. I've spent five years saying, surely, I mean, to your point about, about you know, um, credit growth to income growth, I've spent, uh, you know, the last five years saying, well, surely it can't go up much more because incomes aren't growing, house prices keep growing. This has to have some sort of natural conclusion or we all pay 110% of our incomes in, in mortgage repayments, right? So there is, there's got to be some point at which it stops or slows or something. And yet here we are talking after an 18.4%, as you said earlier, annualized growth in house prices. So I, I've looked like a deal for the last five years and probably deservedly so, some would say. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I do wonder I, what, what does come next. You've, you've got the data. You're seeing what's going on. You're seeing the patterns and the trends and and the drivers. Uh, can it continue? Does it continue? What comes next? Do you have a view? I I would say for the rest of 2021, I think it's safe to assume that prices are probably going to keep going up. But the rate at which they're increasing is definitely slowing. So that's something that's kind of petering out. We're probably not going to see as much of a boost to the monetary policy side of things. Um, as as I, I don't think we'd be going much lower than a 0.1% cash rate. And there are, a, there are a mix of headwinds and tailwinds ahead, you know. We've got uh, closed international borders, so at some point I, I'd imagine that would have an impact on demand. There's the kind of longer-term factors of um, mortgage rates rising once we see more of an economic recovery. But the idea there being, too, that a rate rise would be triggered by higher income growth as well. So the hope is that people would have more income to service those mortgages as well. And then there is the, I think, one of the more realistic things that that will curb the property market would be that macro prudential space. Probably very different to what we saw last time. uh, APRA made interventions around interest-only lending, targeting the investment space. Um, it, it seems that this would be more limiting, potentially riskier kinds of lending like high loan to income ratios or high debt to income ratios, or even just an increase in the serviceability rate. And those things would probably trigger a turn in the market and property prices to decline, but I think that's a fair way off yet. Okay. The the assumption is always that prices property prices never go down. Not only is that factually incorrect, but uh, but probably gonna gonna happen from time to time, right? I guess the the, the question is is what price you're paying, whether you can afford to repay it. Um, and I would I would have said, and I think you kind of alluded to this, but to some degree, the RBA's hands are tied themselves, right? They can't push rates back up to three percent without sending the, the entire country broke. The the people who borrowed 
on on. I mean, yeah, yeah. There's the max book buffers in there, but the reality is there's, there's some limitation of what the RBA can now do because of the indebtedness of Australians. They've almost tied their own hands by not having prudential rules in place while lowering rates, which has you know enticed many people to borrow even more. Rates go up to you know three percent. <laughs> Maybe they never do again, but that's almost the point, right? There's plenty of people out there saying, "Well, I wouldn't buy property because it's going to crash because when rates go back up to seven percent, then no one can afford to repay it." I think that's factually true, but there's a big if between those two statements, right? It, the RBA can't or won't, in my view, do that knowing full well they would cause that sort of calamity. The RBA itself almost feels like it's 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 kind of stuck in its own uh, you know web of its own making to some degree. I mean, I think there's a lot of coordination between the RBA and the Council of Financial Regulators. So there are very prudential measures in place and banks being encouraged to monitor the risk. But then, you know, through COVID, I'd never seen a national initiative to defer mortgage repayments. Right, it's crazy, like eh? the, the, the institutional coordination and response was extraordinary. And I think that just goes to show as well that when we talk about the property, the property market crashing, even at the start of COVID, where there was a general consensus that property prices were going to fall, we underestimated the institutional response. We underestimated the institutional response for a very high value, very entrenched <laughs> pillar of our financial and economic system. So keep that in mind, I would say. <laughs> Reminds me of a, of a forecaster who made a very famous bet about house prices many years ago, who, who I won't mention, but his name might rhyme with Steve Keen, uh, who, who when challenged on why he was wrong, said, well, I would have been right, except the RBA made some changes. And I was kind of like, that's kind of the point, right? It's, yeah, there's, we, we don't, I don't mean to slag Steve off. He's a, he's a good guy. Actually, quite yeah, actually. I don't agree with him a lot of the time. It's fair um, enough. The whole idea yeah. of, exactly, well, the whole idea of, you know, that, that, but they will respond, right? That's almost the point, assuming that the, the current settings will remain and therefore if they do, this will happen. That's a fine hypothesis, but if the current settings don't change, again, that little word if that has every, you know, tiny word, but massive, massive implications, it only takes, as you say, an institutional response at a government level, or in this case, frankly, the entire financial system kind of going, yeah, we could actually be the, you know, the, we could say the seeds of our own destruction here if we if we push too hard. Let's actually, A, frankly, be decent, which is kind of nice, but B, um, look after our own interests by not, not creating the circumstances that would bring us down. Yeah, I was I was going to say there's decency and then there's mortgages making up 60% of your loan books. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. That'll do it. But let's finish off with a few questions if you wouldn't mind. A couple of questions about you and just some some, some thoughts for the future. Uh, the first one I've got for you is uh, we, we have a, a listeners who love reading, uh, watching, listening. Uh, so I'm curious, what are you reading, watching, podcasting, streaming, uh, enjoying at the moment? We're all in lockdown, so maybe there's more time for, for this sort of thing than normal. Uh, anything particularly you'd recommend that you, you, you've just read or are reading at the moment? Uh, a little uh, podcast uh, called The Motley Fool. Oh, and, you can uh, come back, Eliza. You'll, you'll, I'll buy up next week. <laughs> and we'll be sure to uh, make sure I'm subscribed to the Good Oil podcast Thank you. as well. Thank you. Um, so, but in terms of reading at the moment, I'm I'm actually reading fiction. I'm really into fiction. I find it a beautiful kind of escape from everything that's going on. Um, so, at the moment, I'm reading Gabrielle Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. Um, published. Oh, I hear that's spectacular. My wife loves it. Beautiful book, yeah. So published in the 1960s and um, just a really, it's that kind of um, uh, magical realism genre. So there are ghosts kicking around and, and crazy things happening and everyone just takes for granted that that's kind of normal, uh, which I love. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful book, yeah. 
Oh, cool. Very nice. Thank you. That's a, that's a good a recommendation for us. Um, I'm curious, this, is, this sounds like a question that's specific about property. It can be or something else. Um, what trends are you watching? What are you kind of seeing happening at the moment? It can be property specific, economic, it can be global technology. Like just, is there anything kind of going, wow, that's cool or that's interesting or that's scary or kind of what, what trends are kind of grabbing your attention at the moment? Um, I have definitely been following some of the outputs from the ABS. I feel like the ABS is the MVP in the data space. I love the ABS. For, <laughs> <laughs> and they've, they stepped up enormously through COVID-19 with the release of payroll data. Something I've been following very closely is the provisional migration, the internal migration estimates. Cool, yeah, okay. So, yeah. you know, where I can share that insight with you about declining regional departures and slight increase in... Um, capital city departures and they've been breaking that down nicely by greater capital city and rest of state so you can see arrivals to departures from stuff like that that that's really interesting and i think as well that data is always going to be a bit lagged so there's been a big you know narrative around exodus from cities and then rushing back to check the data and make sure (laughs) (laughs) that's actually happening that's that's the case so that's been awesome that's so so much good stuff coming from the abs there you go data nerds go get to the abs and check out some of that cool stuff uh second last question mate what advice would you give someone who is interested in a job in your industry someone who's maybe coming out of uni and kind of saying you know eliza i'm interested in a job in in property in property research property analysis data Uh, what advice would you give them I think it's important to stay very open-minded. COVID has been very humbling from a consensus of property prices declining to rising 18% in the space of a year. So just being open-minded, open to having your opinions challenged and changed uh, and running with that and caring more about about the truth than caring about being right and having the best reputation, I think it's really important. And and I'd also say go for it because studying <laughs> economics <laughs> and housing is incredible. It's so interesting and relates to so many facets of people's lives. Mate, can I say that advice too about, I love the advice of go for it, uh, but the advice of kind of being open to it, it's that very scientific approach, right? I don't know who it is. I wish I'd, I probably should find the quote. Of a science based saying, you know, his life work was disproven. He was, he said, I, I can't, I can't imagine he was 100% this way, but he said, I've never been happier because it means that science is, is, is being progressed. The fact that someone said, yeah. this is the theory, it's wrong, and we've proven something else, it takes a, I don't, I don't know, I, could, I don't think I could do it. I think I could say, I've spent 40 years in this industry and everything's been a mistake because someone else has found a, a truer <laughs> truth. I, it must be devastating at one level, but it's really cool to be able to say, as, as you said, you know, it's, it's about what's right, what's actually happening, and, and being, being stuck and ideological about stuff is not, not very useful. Correct. Um, Speaking of which, last question. I'm an optimist by nature, Eliza, and I feel like you might be too. What are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic about our recovery, <laughs> our economic <laughs> no. recovery, our mental health recovery. Um, I am. I was very. I'm optimistic, and I think Australians are too, off the back of the virtually V-shaped recovery in economic activity that we saw coming out of restrictions through 2020. Um, consumer confidence is still trending above 100, according to the ANZ Roy Morgan reading, um, despite much of the country being in lockdown uh, over August. So I think there's a lot of resilience. Um, there are certainly issues and inequalities that need to be addressed, but I'm optimistic that we can have a fairly strong recovery from an engineered downturn or slowdown in economic activity. 
That is a wonderful way to finish. Phil, I told you Eliza was smart. I told you she knew the information. had all the stuff. <laughs> and I'll say at her fingertips, but I, can I tell you, we're chatting on this Zoom. I have not seen her refer to her notes once. Uh, it has been an absolute tour de force through the property market. Eliza, thank you for joining us. We have been speaking with Eliza Owen, the head of Australian research at property, fine, uh, property research firm CoreLogic. Thanks very much, Eliza. Thanks so much for having me. If you want to hear more from The Good Oil, please make sure you do like and subscribe. Uh, Jump on your podcast feed right now. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button. You can follow us on social media. You can get me at TMFScottP. We can get The Good Oil at Good Oil Podcast. They're both on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Also look up The Good Oil or Scott Phillips Money on Facebook. And Liza, I should have asked you, what's your social? How do we follow you on social media? Oh, it's been a while since I've been on the Twitter. I'm I'm pretty sure it's, uh, if you just search for Eliza Owen on Twitter, Eliza Owen. I'm trying to desperately find it now because I do follow you on Twitter. (laughs) Eliza underscore Owen you are. So there you go. Follow Eliza underscore Owen on Twitter and you get good stuff from Eliza. like the sort of thing we've talked about. I have a feeling we'll have you back another time, Eliza. Will you come back? I would love that. That would be a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. On my behalf and behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for your time and thanks for listening to The Good Oil. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips. It's produced excellently by Beth Gibson and audio imaged brilliantly by Link Kelly. Listener.